Before we get started with a new podcast episode, we want to remind you that we do these shows as a way to provide mental, emotional, and spiritual encouragement outside of the counseling room for free. Our desire is to touch as many lives as possible, so be sure to spread the word to friends, family, coworkers, classmates, and share the podcast on your social media platforms. If you've not done so already, be sure to subscribe. That way, you'll get immediate notification every time a new episode drops. Thanks so much, and now, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome to the Resolutions Podcast, where we like to turn difficult topics into helpful conversations. My name is Michael Gum, and you are now listening to the second half of a two-part episode in which our host, Chris Campbell, engages in a conversation with guest Linda Wynn about her experiences as an African-American police officer in Baltimore City, Maryland, as well as her current work as a clinical social worker. If you missed part one, we encourage you to go back, download our previous episode, and listen to it first. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy part two of Chris's conversation with Linda Wynn. Yeah, I've got I've got uh, two different avenues that uh, that I'd like for you to 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 think about to respond to uh, here. Just uh, given you know what you've explained as far as you know the community presence versus the enforcement the hierarchy shift that happened, uh, the protocols that developed from that, but also an unchecked double standard is what you're, what you're describing here. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you an opinion, but it's a very informed opinion. And as you're explaining that, and as that is played forward a decade, two decades, three decades, I'm, I'm listening to it and going, number one, I can't help but believe that that's where examples of excessive force, abuse of power, et cetera, come into play. That's, that's the one avenue that I'd like for you to, to respond to. And then I've got a mental health question too that I want to throw out for you, but uh, I'll, I'll hold that for now. So am I, am I right in connecting those dots in your opinion? Yes, you are, Chris. Absolutely. Um, so can I back up a little bit? When I see this double standard in law enforcement, I have to wonder why and where it came from. So that's what I wanted to back up to a little bit in in detail, especially since Baltimore City, located in Maryland, Maryland was a southern and northern state during the Civil War. uh, And there's still a lot of uh, aspects of, of, of what goes on in the state of Maryland and in Baltimore City that reflects that Southern attitude. Uh, And one of those things is in the way that we did police then at that time in Baltimore City. So I want to remind your listeners that in the South, law enforcement developed very differently from the way it developed in the Northern states. In the South, uh, law enforcement started with, just as it did in the North, the protection of property and people, 
But in the South, it started with the protection of property and people, property belonging to white people and people who were white. Okay. Now, during the era of slavery in our country, there were uh, businesses, and I'll use that term loosely, uh, there were businesses formed of people who would chase down runaway slaves Mm -hmm. and return them to their masters. Mm -hmm. There are businesses where you could take your slave who was not conforming the way you would like for him to uh, take that slave to this person and he would discipline the slave for you. Yes. And um, the disciplines were harsh, Mm -hmm. inhumane practices that were acceptable because they were being done to African-Americans who were at that time not even considered to be uh, equal in humanity, equal in essence to others. So um, these people who were slave catchers, who who were the disciplinarians, uh, for um, uncooperative slaves. These were the people who then fought for the South in the Civil War. They fought for the Confederacy. And when the South fell, these were the unemployed soldiers who then became, once again, the enforcers. Wow. Carrying out acts of violence. Yes and control of African-Americans. Okay. And so when these groups of people became the enforcers after slavery was abolished, these were the groups of people who uh, were writing uh, Jim Crow laws, who were creating an environment that was for the purpose on the surface of protecting uh, white people from these freed African-Americans because there was a need at that time to make sure that these people were, that these white people were safe. And there was a need at that time because now we're going into reconstruction to make sure that these white people would be able to um, rebuild after the war and they needed labor to rebuild. And so where would we get this labor force? Mm-hmm. And so these once slave catchers, once slave punishers, once uh, civil war uh, uh, fight of Confederate fighting soldiers were the population who was giving the responsibility of of, of managing this African American community, mm-hmm. and in managing the African American community, they were creating ways of using the labor. Um, of these freed slaves to rebuild the South. So when you hear black people say, um, yeah, you know, black people built this country, uh, you know, we, we, we built this country. They're talking about roads that were built because African-Americans were being arrested 
and uh, used as labor to build roads, mm-hmm. used as labor to uh, build, rebuild the South. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and, and they were being arrested for, for frivolous things. Um, I mentioned um, uh, moving people along in the Flag House neighborhood because you can't have four, five, six African-Americans uh, a gathering. There was actually uh, laws in the South where you could arrest a Black person if there were too many of them gathering together. Mm-hmm. Little things like that that they could put you in jail for and indenture you for a period of time to get the South rebuilt. So I wanted to give a little bit of history of where that idea of Black people being policed differently may have come from. That's the lingering effect of that in my mind is what your parents and others were fleeing from. Absolutely. And when my father said police is the worst people in the world, this is what he was referring to. He was referring to being stopped after dark because he was black and should not be out after dark. Um, So he was referring to having a job working for one white man and then seeing an opportunity to work someplace else and do more for your family, but not being able to go to that other place to work because your first boss says that he doesn't want you to go. And if you do go over there, you could be arrested yeah. for yeah. leaving that job. Yeah. Don't you have a right to work where you want to work? Right. Don't you have freedom to choose your own profession? So um, this is the background of policing in the South and Baltimore City um, is in the South. Okay. So um, this double standard, which was very much unchecked when I was in law enforcement in Baltimore City, was the result of just these beliefs that people had based upon uh, what the history of the South is. So I wanted to say that and then um, bring us back to today. Now we, we know, Chris, as clinicians, we know that, um, we know that our behavioral patterns are formed by historical events. My dad did some things in our home based upon his Past. This is all elementary, right? Right. So um, I'm wondering if maybe the whole idea of African Americans having to be controlled because they, j- just the idea of them having to be controlled, I'm just wondering if that is what we're re- reacting to on the police department. This idea that this population, more than other populations, really needs to be controlled. Now, I know that I know that um, there are certain things that are occurring more in some communities than in other communities, and because my background is in 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 drug enfor- in law enforcement and in drug enforcement, I know that there are certain types of drugs that were preferred in the in the African American community 
when I was policing uh, that were not drugs of, that were not drugs that were preferred in the Caucasian communities when I was working in law enforcement. So um, I know that there are differences, and so you do patrol according to what the the um, the challenges are. But I'm just wondering if sometimes those challenges are really perceptions and not the reality of what is there. And I'll give you an example. May I? Yeah, please, please. So um, I, I left the Baltimore City Police Department in 1985 to become a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration. And that's where I spent the balance of my almost 30 years in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So um, what I'm saying now has more to do with just um, uh in, uh, drug enforcement than general enforcement. Okay, right. so the rest of my career was spent in drug enforcement. So the African African American community back in the eighties had a huge challenge with crack cocaine. Right, cocaine was everywhere mm-hmm. in every community. Mm-hmm. Crack cocaine was very popular in the African American community. So what does the federal government do? The federal government decides that we're going to crack down on this crack epidemic by putting people in jail for longer periods of time if they possess crack cocaine, as opposed to possessing other drugs. Mm. So there was a five-year, five-gram law that was passed federally. So if I have five grams of crack cocaine, uh, which you could see on the table and brush away because it would would look like rocks of dirt. Um, If I had five grams of crack cocaine, I could go to jail for five years. No question, no exception, no parole. You had to spend the whole five years in jail. So you could have a larger amount of cocaine in powder form and not go to jail for five years. Now, that larger amount of cocaine in powder form can be used to make a lot of crack cocaine, but it's just powder, and we don't need to put you in jail for five years for five grams of powder or for an ounce of cocaine powder. We don't have to do that. But Chris, the whole thing just didn't make sense to me because what I saw was the enforcement of a law that interfered with, that harassed, that hugely diminished the African-American community. Now, I don't say for one moment that we need to not arrest people for arrestable offenses and crack cocaine is illegal. But why, I have to ask myself, why did we go to that extent? And the only thing that comes to mind as an answer as I roll this around in my head over and over again is that the crack epidemic was in a community that needed to be controlled. 
And so we're going to control the community by taking people out of the community for small amounts of crack cocaine. Now, I, again, I don't defend anyone who chooses to distribute any kind of drug because you are selling poison to your community, to my community. Um, I don't defend that. But what I'm looking at is the same thing that the people who are protesting today, peacefully, the same thing that they're looking at. They're looking at the inequity of laws that impact one community as opposed to another. So this is an example of, of how, and this, ha- this was going on when I was in law enforcement. I refused as a, as a federal agent to take certain cases to the federal courts because if I took this arrestee into federal court with five grams of crack cocaine, he's getting five years, period. Yeah. Yeah. And I had state prosecutors and state police officers uh, who were shoving cases at me because they wanted these people from a community that needed to be controlled. They wanted these people out of the community. They wanted these people uh, punished to the maximum. So they were shoving these cases at me and I was declining them for the most part. I'm not saying that I didn't take one or two um, for investigative purposes, I'll say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But they were pushing these cases at the federal government, at the federal courts, because, again, what they believed from a history of who they believe African-American people to be is that the best way to patrol the African-American community is enforcement, 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 no grace, enforcement, enforcement, enforcement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is probably the best breakdown and explanation example of what I would describe as systemic discrimination and, and injustice that, uh, describes the the laws that in and of themselves are biased. Yes. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that. I mean, like, you know, we're aware, we sort of, we're, we're hearing bits and pieces, but, uh, but that was just, I, I hope our listeners back up and listen to that again. I hope they back up and, and, and share that again, because, um, that really frames things in a way that, again, how have we gotten to where we are in 2020? Um, and I just appreciate that so much, uh, you taking the time to do that. I, I want to add one caveat to it, and uh, maybe, maybe it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discussion for another time uh, here on the show. But here's another concern that I have, and this ties back to, uh, you know, you talked about, um, you know, uh, Confederate soldiers and, uh, you know, where they began to find work uh, through enforcement control and so forth in the South. Um, I gave you a chance to be opinionated. I'm about to be really opinionated. Please, I would (laughs) love to hear what you have to say, Chris. Well, I I have a heavy heart 
over the lack of mental health screening uh, that, um, you know, that's absent from, you know, the onset of application for people who are looking to get involved in law enforcement. Uh, this is not a blanket statement, but I will tell you that as a person that specializes in uh, post-trauma adolescent care, uh, crisis counseling, and so forth, uh, that when you know when you have children, when you have young people who are still, uh, you know, they've not reached maturity, uh, they're in very crucial stages of life phase development, and they have been subjected to. Uh, trauma to duress to being uh, violated in very serious ways um, without the help of people who can step in and surround them, help them to process that emotionally, help them give them the tools uh, to uh, to work through that in a healthy way to frame things even uh, from a faith based perspective. What can happen is you have a person who reaches adulthood physically. But on a mental, emotional level, there is a trauma-induced developmental delay. Now, now I'm not talking about IQ or intelligence quotient, but I am talking about EQ or emotional quotient. Uh, There just tends to be this, this manifest, stunted growth in a person's capacity to reach a place of maturity in their emotions or their capacity to emote even with others, the capacity to empathize within normal ranges. And I'll even say this, this, this type of trauma induced developmental delay, I believe also slows down a response to danger or dangerous situations. This sort of short circuiting brought about by trauma in childhood or adolescence uh, is actually mistaken for courage or valor many times. It, it can make first responders, law enforcement officers, soldiers, etc., perform exceptionally under pressure because they're emotionally flatlined. That's how they survived abuse in childhood. So they're, they're sort of pseudo-regulated. Therefore, they can put themselves in harm's way without the fear factor that, that many other people have. So, you know, a career in law enforcement seems like a logical career choice for people who on, you know, the outside appear to be very brave. But we could be overlooking the backstory of unresolved trauma and an inability to empathize. And I know that the, the same is true for undiagnosed or overlooked trauma that, that stems from the job in these situations, especially law enforcement. You know, we can talk about first responders, military, uh, and so forth. Linda, I can let you speak to that. But I will tell you that, we'll just take, take one of the latest. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole time when you have a law enforcement officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, for almost 10 minutes and this person is appealing they're begging and there's no emotional response to that at all it's flatline i want to say as a mental health care professional here's a problem that we've got to look at with the people and the standards that we're setting for law enforcement and who gets to carry the badge who gets to step into those places because by your own testimony, your upbringing was very different. Mm. You know, it sets you into a place to where you could combine, you know, 
all these life experiences from a standpoint of not just spirituality of who you are in Christ, uh, but you reached a, a point of maturity to where emotionally you had the capacity to be mature at the same time. So I, I'm going to step off my soapbox here for a second and just say, hey, am, am, am I right with that? Does, that? does that make sense? Is that something as well that I believe factors into you know, what we're talking about as far as uh, excessive force, abuse of power, things that feed cultural bias, you know, tone deafness, those sort of things? Chris, you are spot on. You're spot on, my brother. That is it exactly, exactly. Um, and then the question is, how do we measure it? Oh, wow. But you're, you're, you're so right in saying that um, this empathy piece, that is the key. Um, when, we co- when I go into a home um, in uniform, Am I going to help someone who has called me for help or am I going because I hear there's a law that's been broken there and I need to go in to enforce the law? Mm. And if I have the ability to empathize when I get to that home and that woman and that man are having a dis or in discord over something, if I have the ability to empathize, then I'm not anxious to put my hand on that gentleman to arrest him, uh, and, or I'm not anxious to put my hand on this woman to arrest her because uh, the, the, the whole neighborhood is, is being uh, interrupted by their discord. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and I'm, I'm ta- speaking from a very real um, engagement that I had as a police officer uh, coming on to the scene where a couple was outside of the home arguing. And what ultimately happened was, and it happened very quickly, they were, um, they were arguing and the police officer who got the call, he arrested the gentleman um, who was arguing with his wife uh, and, and, and uh, charged him with being disorderly in public when it could have gone an entirely different way, hmm. an entirely different way. This was a white couple, by the way. Okay, I want to make sure everybody knows. Okay, okay. This was a white couple, and this is a police officer who had no empathy for the fact that sometimes people just don't get along, and sometimes uh, uh People express themselves in a way that can be a little bit disruptive, but to take someone into the penal system to lock somebody up for a couple hours or overnight for something like that is—is is that really necessary? Um, when we could have done what happens in a lot of cases, or what ha- did happen in a lot of cases. Uh, a group would talk to one party, a group would talk to another party, and then we would decide, okay, then the parties would decide, okay, who's going to leave the house for for a little while um, until somebody cools down. Mm -hmm. Um, This is is, uh, an option that was not exercised. And the reason that it wasn't exercised, only that officer who grabbed that gentleman and arrested him, only he can answer that question. But let me just say this. This is an officer 
who I knew enjoyed locking people up. Yeah. He enjoyed locking people up. And so um, if I have any empathy for um, someone who, if I, if I could understand what it meant to have my freedom taken away for just a couple hours, um, what it meant to have my finances interrupted because now I have to pay attorney's fees and I have to pay fines. If I took a moment to understand what that meant, then I'm not going to be so quick to grab somebody and to put them in jail, put them first of all in handcuffs in front of their children. Mm -hmm. This man was handcuffed in front of his children. Yeah. He should not have been arguing with his wife in front of his children either, but he was handcuffed in front of his children put into the back. We didn't, we didn't have a paddy wagon coming put into the back of a cruiser and driven away in front of his children. You, you don't you don't feel for this guy. You don't you don't feel you you, you, you don't you don't feel for for this guy being um, in this position in front of his children. And now his wife is upset because his her husband is taken away. Now she's starting to understand the ramifications of what has happened. But it's just an example of yes, um, empathy is definitely um, something that has to come into the um, assessment of, the, of a person who wants to get this job. What, 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 what do you, how do you demonstrate em- empathy? What, is, what does that even mean? Mm. Do you know what it is? Um, if there was a way that we could capture as we're going through the interview process, the assessment of this person who wants this job, if we could capture what empathy was for this is for this person um we could get an idea of whether or not he could one day put his knee on the neck of someone until they expired mm-hmm. we could maybe capture that now you may be able to empathize coming into the police department now what we need to do is monitor uh the health of these professionals. When I was a police officer, I was a professional. And these people are professionals. I love them. I still have a deep love for the law enforcement community. And what we need perhaps is a way of monitoring monitoring their health through the career, through through their years in, in, in this career. When I left, the um, Drug Enforcement Administration, again, after almost 30 years of law enforcement, I was hugely traumatized. Mm. Um, I went directly to school to get my master's so that I could be a clinician. But that process, which could have been a two-year process, because I I couldn't have gone full-time because I wasn't working, but I couldn't manage a full-time school schedule and manage the trauma mm-hmm. of what happened to me as I policed mm-hmm. for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to get the help that I needed um, while I was learning the uh, process of clinical care. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm wondering if maybe we need to do more uh, once we do assess a person and find that they do have the requisite amount of empathy to be in the job, um, if we're even able to measure that. But but how do we may help them to maintain that health throughout their career so that they don't find themselves in a situation where they're doing something that appears to be and is quite heartless. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's, that's such a great response. And here's what I would say, you know, um, the, the whole tagline for what we try to do here in this podcast is we take difficult topics and turn them into helpful conversations. And beyond that, if there's something here that, you know, that people find that resonates with them, it's speaking to them. One of the, one of the easiest things to do is to continue the conversation by just sharing the podcast. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's share, you know, let's, let's invite pe- other people into the conversation because somewhere along the lines, uh, there's a collective way of figuring out this problem, uh, you know, that we've highlighted that you're, that you're talking about here. Um, and, and what I, what, what I'd like to do here just as a, as a, as a point of, of getting us to a place of that's maybe a, a really good way to, to, to sort of push pause on the conversation for today I want you. To, I I want you to talk about you know the 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 process of overcoming the trauma that that was there at the end of those thirty years. Uh, I know I knew you during this time. You and I were introduced to each other. You know during this time, worshipped together, served in ministry together, and so forth. And uh, and I remember some of the conversations that that we would talk at length about. Uh, are the things that are near to my heart, very common themes on this podcast. And that's the idea of learning who we are in Christ, identity in Christ, freedom in Christ. Uh, You know, one of the things you talked about here at the onset today of our conversation was how much little things add up. And, um, you know, one of the things that we use as an intervention tool is this this thing called the Steps to Freedom in Christ, which really allows for those things to surface and to and to really be dealt with in a way that you know gets the beginning the 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 healing process deep in your soul initiated, so that you can find your way you know through uh, you know the trauma and um, and really you know um, become healed in the very deepest sense of that. So so let's 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 turn into that discussion your personal faith and, and, you know, we have people who listen, who are involved in law enforcement. Uh, they work in corrections facilities. They, you know, and, and we have, we have people who listen, who have been wrongly unjustly treated by the system. Talk to us about your faith, identity in Christ, freedom in Christ, what, what that has meant to you through the years. Yeah. I don't know where I would be today without Jesus. I would not have been able to, to go back to my first story uh, with Kathy, I would not have been able to love her mm. if it were not for Jesus. Uh, the, 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 the people follow me around in the stores, uh, the inequity in the treatment in the public, uh, the inequity of access to opportunities once I was in law enforcement these are things that would have broken me. They would have broken me the same way that I watched other people be broken. 
And the difference, I know, Chris, the difference is that I went through that with an identity in Christ that those who were broken did not have. Mm. Um, when I say broken, I've, I, I experienced being in, in a relationship with people on the job who did some illegal things that got them in trouble. Now, why would this person who was so upstanding, because I know what it took to get into the Drug Enforcement Administration. I know what that, that process was. How could you come from a position of being so accountable and then fall into taking a piece of equipment that you could afford to buy and selling it to somebody just because how how could you get from this place of high accountability to that place? Um, We were working in drug enforcement to see a community be rid of the scourge of drugs. Okay. So how could you work against that and then find yourself participating in that. Yeah. So the difference, Chris, I have to say, the reason I was not broken and became involved in some things that were happening around me mm-hmm. was Christ. So I learned growing up that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the way. Had that drilled into me in Sunday school and in church but I didn't have the opportunity to live it until life challenged me the way that it did, especially in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So um, what, 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 what the difference was for me, I would see opportunities as I've described to use the law to make me feel good so that I would have several arrests at the end of the month because that was important to my sergeant and that gave me status amongst my peers. Or I had the opportunity to arrest when I believed it was necessary and give up the status that I could have if I do make the arrest. If I do declare the case against the Laotian kid, hey, Yes, Linda got a crime in progress. Yeah. Um, so um, the difference was, again, Christ. Um, the f- Christ gave me the freedom to think otherwise. Yeah. Uh, if I did not have Jesus, then the only way that I would think would be the way of the world, because I'm blind to any other way. That's what the enemy does. It, it keep, the enemy keeps us blinded, and it keeps us out of a place where we can fulfill the mission that God put us here for, mm. and Jesus talked about that. Yes. So I have the freedom to walk in that mission only because... Christ set me free. Yeah. I would not have the opportunity that I have right now to sit in front of you, Chris, if it was not 
for Christ. Yeah. Um, I see in my own family um, the difference between the choices that I've made as opposed to the choices that my own sibling, one of my siblings is making, has made and continues to make in his life because he does not have Christ. Um, I understand when a client sits in front of me and tells me his story of, of degradation and abuse and um, lack, I understand and I can empathize with my client, but I can also say that this person can have that background and be all of those things, the product of all of that, and still make a different choice. Yeah. I can say that not because of what I learned at Catholic University, getting my master's, because they tell you all these different, you've been there, Chris, tell you all these different methods you can use to work with this person. But what is it that gives me hope for this person who's sitting in front of me and sharing? It is my knowledge of the fact that there is real freedom and real healing for this person. And that is only found in Christ. I'm fortunate enough to live in a time because this time is going to be passing, Chris, when I can actually share my faith. Mm -hmm. Um, There are clients who, because of things that I say, uh, maybe something that I'm wearing, uh, they will ask me about my worldview. And in sharing my worldview, with them opening up the door and me being free to walk in that door and, 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 and share with them what a difference Christ has made for me. Mm-hmm. All of that, Chris, all of that is only possible because of what Christ did in my life, mm-hmm. what he did when he hung on the cross. All of that, Chris, I'm free to do otherwise, to choose otherwise, to empathize because of Christ. Mm. Praise the Lord. I mean, that's, that's rich. Um, I appreciate you so much, you know, just going into, into the places that you have today for us, Linda, being so transparent. Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I'm smarter because of it. And at the end of all of these things, you know, uh, again, I go back to your dad's capacity to instill, uh, you know, the idea of hope in you uh, ultimately points to the greatest hope that all of us have. You know, I even uh, uh, my, my mind goes to uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote one of his disciples, Titus, and, uh, and he refers to this blessed hope. You know the, the 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 appearing of our great Lord and Savior one day, who will who will right all the wrongs and eradicate you know the injustice uh, that we see around us. But in the meantime, you know God has put us in places to where if we will receive that salvation, walk in freedom, we get to be the conduits of hope and grace yes. uh, to the world around us. Um, 
Our guest today has been Linda Wynn, an exceptional uh, licensed clinical social worker with a, a wealth of experience in law enforcement. Uh, we're going to have some, uh, some helpful notes available uh, here on the show notes page. Again, that will, that will give you the tools to learn how to step into a place of, of healing uh, and, uh, and actually practice uh, you know, what we would refer to as biblical forgiveness that releases bitterness from you. You know, to the point where you're you're free to walk out the life and to be the you that God created you to be. Uh, Linda, thanks so much uh, today. Thank you, um, yeah, please convey our, our greeting and and thanks to to Richard as well, your your wonderful husband. Uh, your 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 puppy has behaved himself. <laughs> 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 I know that uh, that's a dear companion for you there, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be very anxious. Uh, you know, I, well, I don't like to use that word here. We'll be very excited, uh, <laughs> to, uh, you know, to uh, again to allow people to hear your thoughts and to and to share today's show. Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris. Blessings to you. All right. Wow. Uh, that was an amazing conversation, Chris. Yeah, just it's one of those that I've I've already listened to it more than once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've backed up and I just I wanted to absorb and soak as much of that up as as I possibly as I possibly could because there's so much rich content that gives me so much additional uh, you know backstory to develop an understanding that I that I hope is producing a greater sense of empathy and and what I'm really trying to do is to is to try to wrap my mind around okay well uh, is there anything that I can you know assume a responsibility in as far as let's make this a better situation hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the first thing to to do, I mean, thinking back to what uh, what Daryl said in the previous episode, step one is education, and I think we mm. got quite an education uh, from this interview. And uh, you know, really, I, I, some of the information, uh, you know, a lot of it was was firsthand, which I really uh, which I really appreciated. Um, but then when when she was going into a lot of the uh, the origins of of the double standard in uh, the way that that white and black Americans are are policed. Um, it was reminding me a lot of uh, some info I've been getting from from one of the the, the books that that has been circulating a lot in in, in, in people's discussions online. Uh, it's a book by Michelle Alexander called "The New Jim Crow: Mass mm-hmm. Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness," yes. and it, you know it really it, it it's making the argument that uh, that the mass incarceration of African Americans um, is accomplishing a lot of the the same goals as Jim Crow laws, but with mm-hmm. uh, you know not as much of the the stigma that that was associated with those. So basically, for all that to say. For anyone who's looking for for more information on on this topic, uh, you know I'm I'm starting to read it. I'm only a couple of chapters in, but I, I can only assume that that there is just a a wealth of information in in that book that our listeners will appreciate. Uh, Michael, I appreciate you suggesting that book, and and I want to I want to say this because after the first uh, you know discussion that we that we launched with Daryl, we got a lot of just really helpful feedback, and as you would imagine, it would come from uh, both sides of the spectrum, both ends of the spectrum, I should say, both sides of the issue, and and just sort of uh, a lot of opinions in between. Uh, but here's here's what I need for our listeners to probably understand, and again, a bit of, a bit more disclosure here. 
when we talk about resources or we're, we're bringing sort of into discussion different viewpoints, we're purposely not homogenized in that here. Okay. You know, I mean, there are plenty of podcasts if you want to subscribe to uh, who will stick to a certain party line or maybe affirm and confirm what it is that you've already, uh, you know, educated yourself with, with a certain point of view. And, uh, and they'll, they'll tell you what you want to hear or would like to hear. But to be fair, you know, to our listeners, what we want to do is to say, hey, you know, part of education and informing yourself means getting familiar with different points of view and perspectives. And so uh, from time to time, we'll, you know, we'll uh, mention a resource or maybe have a resource there and somebody will look at it and go, whoa, 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 that's not exclusively a Christian publication or whoa, that's not. Republican or Democrat or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're, as we, as we move into these areas of social issues that are hotly contested, very contentious, you know, there are certain things that I, I do appreciate and know that are, that are sort of triggers for folks. And they, they learn to dial in on certain uh, vocabulary, certain wording, certain labels and so forth. And, just because we might share a resource or use a certain term or terms to describe something, um, I can assure you it's not in a way of trying to necessarily push that agenda or from where that comes from. But we're saying it's going to take a lot of listening to each other to get to a place where we can really understand what's the best way forward. Am, am I making sense with that? Absolutely. And I think it's the same thing with conversations with one another, because I mean, you know, some of us, I suppose, maybe in a, in a circle that that's, that's very homogenous, but really the goal with this podcast is that we would generate helpful conversation. And part of that is going to be differing viewpoints and whether it's someone that you're talking with face to face or reading their views in a book, you know, not everything that we we hear or read is going to line up with what we believe. And that's kind of the point, right? Right. Right. I, that's well said. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that I would say is, um, you know, when you're, when you're really striving for growth, you, you just can't expect perfection. Uh, it's, it's going to get a little clunky. We're going to be off base, but together as we, as we can come and reason together within the safety of, of dignity and mutual respect, uh, I think we can get there. And just really quick on top of that, just even as recently as today, uh, you know, I, I met with somebody, had coffee with, with uh, a person who I consider a, a really good Christian friend. I'm emphasizing the word Christian because our faith enables us to step into a space of different ideas and to sort of lean into each other, to sort of go at each other with dignity, with yeah. respect, yeah. Mm -hmm. with you know, listening as much or more than talking. And, and our conclusion, you know, wasn't that we had reached a consensus, but the conclusion was, hey, even if we're starting sort of at opposite ends of this issue, we're both trying to get to the balanced middle. And the more I describe what I'm seeing from, you know, on a scale of one to 10, a six or a seven, what I see is a five and the more he's maybe describing what he sees from a three or a four to a five, we're going to get there as long as we are moving towards each other verbally in love and really paying attention and listening. And so, 
you know, that, that's our hope, you know, with these, with these podcasts as we provide them and, and really get people who have, you know, just greater insight than you and I can offer into these really delicate um, cultural issues that, that really touch the heart. Yeah, Chris. And uh, really the point is, this is just a continuing conversation. You know, we're not going to always get it right. We're going to have to, uh, you know, occasionally we'll put our foot in our mouth. We'll have to kind of <laughs> walk something back. Right. Um, but but really, it's we're not expected to be perfect. And I mean, thank God that we're not. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. And he walks side by side with us. And, and really, in, in these conversations that we're having with each other, uh, we also got to remember that we got to be having conversations with the Lord. We've got to bring it to him in prayer. We've got to search his word um, and, and really find his perspective. And I, and I, and I think that's going to, to help us out the most in the long run as we continue to uh, just face these challenging topics and, uh, and, and continue these conversations. That is such a good word, Michael. And uh, you know, as you're as you're talking about things getting a little a little clumsy, a little awkward, far from perfect, the disciple who was known to being just that guy <laughs> in Jesus's crew was uh, was Peter, right? Yeah, for sure. Who would be the apostle Peter? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and in a letter that Peter writes the church, it comes to mind here. First Peter four eight. Peter declares that love covers a multitude of sin. That's right. So, so uh, we trust uh, and hope that as you journey with us in this conversation, number one, we want this this podcast to be catalytic. Uh, we want it to generate more conversations in your circles. We're going to ask you to share this episode with as many people as possible, even if you're taking exceptions uh, to maybe some of the things that we share, some of the observations that are made. It's still going to really really create ongoing synergy momentum in a conversation that at this point we've just got to continue. We have to continue it. And, uh, and we trust that you, that you're picking up on our heart and our heart, I believe is, is love. We want to see all things accomplished, uh, in a spirit of love. And that's why we do what we do. Yeah. So that's probably enough said for today. Again, I'm going to encourage our listeners to, uh, to not only share uh, this podcast, spread the word, uh, put it out there on your social media platforms, get in touch with people, have them listen. Uh, you know, and on top of that, uh, please subscribe. If you mm-hmm. haven't yet subscribed, please consider doing so. And uh, if you have valued our perspective uh, on this podcast, be sure to leave us a positive review. I think that really helps, uh, that helps others find our podcast. So if you've got the time to do that, uh, just drop us a line there on, uh, on, on Apple podcasts or whatever your preferred platform. Awesome. As a teaser, uh, next show, we're going to do a follow-up with Daryl Fitzgerald, and we're going to really take uh, a collection of feedback, comments, questions, observations that came in from the first conversation with him, and we're going to let him address those questions, uh, that feedback directly. So you'll be sure to want to tune into that podcast as well. Great. So until next time, uh, this is the Resolutions Podcast. I'm Chris Campbell. I'm Michael Dumb. Make sure you lead with love, folks, and we'll catch you back here next time. Mm-hmm.